Welcome to episode 72 of Between the Times, a podcast of Christ Church Presbyterian in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, we are here once again at the church offices at 104 Broad Street, and I'm sitting here with my uh, good friend uh, and colleague, uh, Ross Hodges. Ross, good to see you. Good to be seen. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, Gabriel will not be able to be with us today. He is uh, hurricane hunting uh, somewhere on the other side of the globe. We're not quite sure. We heard he was on a on a glider, just sort of gliding through hurricanes. Yeah, something to that effect. Yeah. Dro- you know, dropping sensors down in there. Yeah, something like that. Anyway, um, we'll be thinking about you, Gabe, and uh, look forward to having you back next time. Uh, we uh, do. I do have an important question to ask you, Ross, um, as we get started here. How do you think Auburn uh, football is going to do this year? What are your What are your thoughts about Auburn? Uh, can we talk about something else? <laughs> no, we've had a painful uh, loss uh, as of time of this recording. It's not too far after the uh, the LSU game, ooh, so things ooh. are still a little a uh, little sore in my household. But uh, I, I think I think we're going to turn around. I think we're going to come back. We've got a very of course difficult you are. Schedule. Of course you are. Of course we are. Got to say that. We're going to turn it around. We're going to run the football. We're going to play good offense and defense and have a good football game, yes, yes. as all the coaches say. Of course, uh, touchdowns, play some defense, yes. make some tackles. Make some, there we go. So, uh, yeah, I, I think I think we've got a chance to to do some good things. We just, hopefully, the LSU game was the uh, punch in the stomach we needed to really turn ourselves around. Yeah, who do you have this week? Um, I believe it is, uh, you know what? I'm not, not sure. sure. I'm not okay. sure. That just shows your sanctification level, Ross. <laughs> yeah. That you don't even I'll, know. I'll probably wake up Saturday morning and, and look and see who it is because okay. I'm probably not going to be able to see the game anyway. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, we are on to uh, more important things now. Uh, Ross, you have been over the last couple of years uh, preaching through uh, 1 Samuel and you've just yeah. recently launched into 2 Samuel. And uh, mm-hmm. as our, some of our listeners would know, we. Uh, share the evening service uh, preaching schedule. I've been preaching through Hebrews chapter 11, mm-hmm. uh, the, the so-called Hall of Faith, and uh, you've been faithfully leading us through these uh, foundational Old Testament uh, historical books, First and Second Samuel. And uh, I thought it would be good for us to talk about this a little bit. And, and before we do uh, begin discussing the uh, the significance and importance of of these uh, books and um, what they mean for uh, the uh, our understanding of, of Christ and the gospel, uh, as well as the, the, the you know in the re- in redemptive history, uh, is is to uh, think for uh, a few minutes about the importance of eating worship because sure. you know a lot of our uh, members would not have heard one of your. I don't know, 60 or 70-something sermons mm. from First or Second Samuel. And um, one thing I've been thinking about a lot, as uh, I mentioned last episode, my wife and I just celebrated a milestone of, of 20 years and Man, yeah. of marriage. And, and we have, of course, two teenage children. And I'm thinking about what a lot of parents think about in their late 40s, uh, you know, how... How faithful have we been to, mm-hmm. to, in the raising of our children, and and uh, what is it that we we want them to leave our home with, and thinking about, and uh, one of those, of course, is uh, just a real commitment to Lord's Day observance. Mm. Uh, who was it? Uh, somebody once said that uh, it's a small step from no Sabbath to no God. Yeah, uh, if you stop acknowledging God on the very day that he himself set apart for worship and fellowship and rest in the Lord, mm. then it's a small step to secularism. 
and as, oh, we've, yeah. as, we've, as we've seen our culture increasing uh, in its uh, secular outlook and, and abandoning uh, church attendance and, and, and so forth, we have a lot of individualistic spiritualities, but not a lot of focus on the importance of the means of grace in the church. And yeah. so one thing that we've done at Christ Church from the very beginning is to have a morning and evening uh, yeah. worship. Oh, yeah. and, and so uh, I would just say before we begin that uh, for our listeners from Christ Church who, who have not made it a commitment to come to evening worship, uh, not that that's the 11th commandment, but it has been emphasized in Reformed piety reformed corporate piety mm. for 500 years because it helps God's people to bookend the Lord's day uh, with worship to keep the day centered on the Lord mm-hmm. uh, t- so that we don't get distracted by things like NFL football and, and other uh, leisure activities that that take our minds off of the Lord uh, just like any other day or any Saturday. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, The Lord's day is not meant to be Saturday with church in the morning. Yeah. Um, it's meant to be the Lord's day, a day of worship and fellowship. And so I would just say, as we start talking about this, man, you've been preaching these in the evening services, and it's been wonderful mm. and edifying and encouraging. And uh, I would just hope that all of our people would make it a priority to, to come as we've launched into the, the book of Second Samuel. So yeah. Yeah. with that being said, uh, Ross, tell us a little bit about the background of these books and uh, why it's important that we, we understand what, they, what they're saying. Yeah, I think in general we want to remember that it's important that the, the Christian church know that the, the story of the Bible from beginning to end is our story and it's for us and that the Old Testament is an integral part of that. Um, of course, the New Testament teaches us Jesus himself uh, teaches his disciples in Luke 24 um, when he, after he, he rises from the dead, he opens their minds to understand the Old Testament and he tells them, he shows them, explains to them how it's about him and it's about his uh, life, death, resurrection, uh, and salvation in him. And, and that's, that's the entire Old Testament. That's Genesis uh, onward is is centered on the Lord Jesus. And so uh, when we come to any place in the Old Testament, whether it's the Samuels or Leviticus or uh, Malachi or what, what have you, the Psalms, um, we, we need to realize that we're going to, we're going to encounter Jesus there and we're going to get the privilege of walking with him through those pages as um, a recent book has uh, pointed out in its title. But um, same, the Samuel uh, narrative, First and Second Samuel, as it's broken up in our Bibles, um, his, in the, the history of the Old Testament, it's coming at a time of tumult for the people. And First uh, Samuel opens up in the Judges period. So if uh, you're familiar with the book of Judges and the things that are happening there, really it's, it's a time of anarchy. And, and Judges ends with a statement that um, everybody does is doing what is right in his own eyes because there's no king in Israel. Right, so it's a, a book of cycles, isn't it? Yes. It's, uh, it's cyclical. There's the, uh, the disobedience of God's people. God sends a judge. The judge preaches repentance. People repent, and then that judge dies, and then the people move right back it into idolatry. It goes right back to the same cycle again. Yeah, and so the, the people, they're in the promised land at this point. They've been, you know, they've been brought out of... Uh, Egypt. They've been brought out of their slavery there. The Lord has brought them through their wilderness wanderings, uh, and and now they're in the promised land. But things aren't really any better. The people are still rebelling against God, and and they're still just r- really untethered from those 
gospel promises that God has given through His covenants and and through the um, through the time, you know, down through the ages, He had been reminding them of those promises, and yet they're really not grasping them in the sense that they're uh, obeying God. They're they're constantly, as you say, this in this cycle of turning away from God, and then He sends this judgment, and then and then a judge comes and helps save them, and so. The, uh, the Samuel narrative opens up in that period, and there's this longing, really, for stability and, and for deliverance from their surrounding enemies that continue to attack them, and, and really, we should understand a, a deliverance from sin and the effects of sin. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the things I love is how the book opens up with this, uh, sort of the introduction is this narrative um, of a, a barren woman. And... There's a theme through the scriptures that you see that when when oh, yeah. the scripture focuses on a barren woman and then a child that's brought in somewhat of a miraculous way, um, God is in God is doing something big, and that's really what's happening in, in the Samuel narrative. And so, the uh, the narrative first and second Samuel really focuses on kinghood uh, the, or kingship in the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. and is there a king that can deliver the people? Is there a king that will save the people even from themselves? Really, not to mention their uh, their enemies surrounding them, and and so First Samuel uh, gets into the narrative of the people demanding a king, and that first king that uh, that God gives to them uh, is Saul, and he looks the part of a king. He you know he's tall, he's handsome, he's strong. He would have uh, you know been on uh, you know the you know top four hundred most influential people in Israel list by the time he was forty. You know that that sort of thing, and so he seems a natural choice, and he starts off well. And earlier. Early in the book, he um, he delivers the people from this rather nasty character named Nahash the Ammonite, who has attacked one of their cities, and he's going to do some terrible things to them. And Saul rallies the people, and he delivers them. And, and so there's this glimmer of hope that, wow, now maybe this king is going to help the people get out of this cycle of sin and destruction and deliver them from their enemies. And then the story continues, mm-hmm. and things go downhill fast. And by about midway in the book, by uh, 1 Samuel 15, Saul has shown his true colors, and he is not a godly king. He's not a man after God's own heart. He has directly disobeyed the Lord in very serious ways. And so God anoints a different king. Um, He doesn't begin reigning yet. Um, He is a young man at the time, David. He is not the one that the the reader uh, or the watcher of the narrative would have considered a likely candidate. He's from a backwater, he, he, you know, an in, uninfluential little place called Bethlehem. He was mm-hmm. the youngest son. He was out in the fields herding the sheep when when uh, Samuel came to anoint him. Mm-hmm. And yet, this is the one that, despite all appearances, God is saying, this is the man who's going to lead my people. This is the man who will help bring salvation to them. And so, the book, uh, First Samuel, continues, and and you see this this sort of literary beautiful theme there too the unlikely king yes right? exactly yeah. the unlikely king and um, and and he's it's weak. highlighting he's weak he's yeah uninfluential you know he kind of a no name guy from a no name family in a no name place yeah. um, and and yet with all of this you see God's hand of providence on it all it and and that's a mistake people make about Old Testament narrative all the time is is they tend to read it as character studies and character examples. Mm-hmm. And there's some of that in there, of course, that's instructive to us. But it's not about Saul or about David. It's about the kingdom. It's about God's covenant promises. It's about the deliverance that he's going to bring. Mm-hmm. 
the invisible hand of God in the background, always yes. moving us towards Christ. Yes, exactly. And and that, that becomes more and more apparent as the book goes on, that the people need something drastic. And Saul is certainly not providing that. He, he, he spirals really out of control and just kind of this megalomania, paranoia. Hmm. Uh, I think one of the darkest chapters in all of Scripture is, is involving Saul, and that's First uh, Samuel uh, 22. Saul, in his paranoid state, he ends up murdering um, 85 priests of the Lord, mm. puts them to death because he's paranoid that they've helped David, and then he ends up massacring the town of Nob, men, women, children, everything. Um, he was supposed to do that kind of warfare against Israel's enemies, the Amalekites, and he didn't. And then later he does it against his own people. Yeah. And it's dark, it's dismal, it, it's... It's the kind of thing we hear about happening in Syria, North Korea. And, yeah. But that happened in ancient Israel. Yeah, it was, it was, the, it was the king of Israel who did it. Mm-hmm. The, the one who was supposed to be the shepherd of God's people. He's, he's massacring the sheep. It, it, it's this really terrible moment uh, in the history of God's people. And, and that, that's a low point, for sure. And then God... Um, God removes him at the end of the book through the hand of the Philistines. And uh, David had had multiple opportunities to kill Saul himself. Doesn't do it. Stays his hand from the Lord's anointed. And so the Lord in his providential timing removes Saul from the throne. And and that's uh, around that, that's the end of 1 Samuel where Saul is killed in battle. And David is far away. Um, he's down in the southern part of uh, the country at, at that point. Actually, he's not even in Israel. He's He's... Uh, he's been sort of exiled for safety's sake uh, into the, the Philistine territory. And um, he is, therefore, the, the narrator shows us he's blameless. He, he did nothing to put his hand against God's anointed, and so he's, he's fit to be king. And that's, a, that's what happens then in the opening of Second Samuel. It's leading us to David being anointed, uh, not being anointed um, by God, he's already been there, but to be recognized as king by the people and then as the book, uh, the, the first part of, of 2 Samuel is really uh, David coming to the throne, consolidating power, and being seen as, as the shepherd of God's people, as their king. And so we, we, we come to a very wonderful place. And you're wondering, is this, if you can sort of put yourself in, in the original viewer's uh, seat, as it were, and you're, you're seeing this drama unfold yourself, you, you would maybe have a wonderful sense that, now things are as they should be. Now God is going to rain down his ultimate blessings upon us. And we're in the promised land and we've got the king. And now life will be wonderful forever and ever. Amen. And things go well for a bit. And David wants to build a house for God. And uh, there's this these beautiful chapters that uh, speak of his desire to have a place of worship uh, for the Lord. And um, and then in 2 Samuel 7, uh, the Lord uh, comes to David and in arguably one of the more important chapters in covenant history, he tells David that um, he is going to have a descendant on the throne of Israel forever who will rule God's people, who will bring them into peace. This is what we call the Davidic covenant. Yes, the Davidic covenant mm-hmm. uh, of God promising an anointed one on the throne of David uh, forever. And so even in the original promise, you can see there's this forever language. It's, mm-hmm. it's not the language of normal 
kingship per se, you have an ultimate type promise. Similar to the forever language of the Abrahamic covenant, with yes. a, a, a land that we will inherit forever and ever. Yes. And there will be a king in that land forever and ever. Exactly. Exactly. Those, those two are intimately tied together because they're, they're one in the same promise. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's a really, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful chapter with beautiful promises. And so now we're at this kind of high point. And we, you know, if we're sitting with David hearing this, uh, for we're not going to know all of the ultimate implications and exactly how this plays out, but we know God has promised some wonderful things. And then, not long after that, David uh, takes a nosedive, and then there's the Bathsheba episode and the murder of Uriah, and once again, the human king on the throne of the kingdom has failed. And the rest of the book really is showing the consequences of this. And so all of our hopes in David and in what David could do, sorry, this is a spoiler since we haven't gotten there yet um, (laughs) in the sermon series, but our human hopes in David have been dashed. And now he's just trying to hold it together. He's trying himself not to be killed by his own children because of the the, the chaos that his sin causes. And and we see this very raw, real picture of the consequences of sin, how you can be forgiven and, and yet face some very... Uh, difficult circumstances because of the choices you've made and the sin you've committed. Yeah, so you have the macro perspective where we're seeing the the, uh, redemptive history unfolding and we're we're seeing that ultimately Christ is the answer to all of these things. Exactly. So we're seeing it from the macro point, but, but also in the details of the text, there's a lot of instruction for our lives as Christian believers. Absolutely. And you've been doing such a wonderful job of bringing that application. And I think when it comes to understanding these books, uh, there can be the ditch of only looking at the redemptive historical aspects of it yeah. and and looking to the gospel and looking to Christ, the final king. And that's all right and good and it needs to be proclaimed. But then sometimes there's that to the exclusion of, of application about real life um, issues that they're dealing yeah. with, that we deal with, and that we are supposed to live by faith. And Hebrews 11, of course, reinforces that. Yes. that they live by faith. And, and as we look at Hebrews 11, we have different aspects of, of the Christian life that are lived out by faith by the Old Testament patriarchs and, yeah. and, and figures, and, uh, and that we can model our lives after um, in that way. But then there's also the side, which I think is probably a greater ditch that Christians fall into, and that is to look at the Old Testament only as an instruction guide for, yeah. you know, do this and don't do that. Yeah. Be like David and Daniel, yeah. don't be like yes. Saul. And totally yeah. missing Christ as as what is being typified and, yeah. and prophesied uh, and foretold and anticipated throughout all of these these books. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the Samuel narrative... Uh, just paint such a vivid picture for us on all those levels, the macro level that that while we're brought to this point of, if we can put ourselves in the shoes of the original audience, really hoping that David is going to be a, a, a mighty answer to the problems that the people have been facing, and then those hopes being dashed, and yet those hopes being sustained in that Second Samuel 7 promise, that, that David's royal son will rule on the throne forever, and he will deliver his people um, unto peace, and that ultimately is peace with God. And so there's that macro perspective that, that David's failures 
highlight what the people really need. Saul's failures highlight what the people really need. And so it, it, it draws a straight line to the New Testament for us, and that's how Matthew opens up, isn't it? You know, yes. Matthew 1, one. Yes, and, and so we have the uh, judgment of God uh, for the actions of the kings, David and Solomon included. We have yeah. the divided kingdom of uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom yeah, of Judah. Civil war. Civil war, idolatry, the, 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 the setting up of high places. It's, it's just a blasphemous, oh, horrible yeah. sin. And of course we have uh, Assyria uh, coming in in um, 722. Yeah, coming to ransack and, the northern kingdom. And ransacking the northern kingdom. And then uh, 605, in that period, we have uh, the three deportations and destruction of Judah from yeah. ba- by Babylon. Yeah. And of course, that's where the story of Daniel and the three friends, they get yeah. exiled. And uh, the people of God are living in exile. And then at one point, they are allowed to come back mm-hmm. and to set up a temple, which... The people who remember the first temple wept. Wept when they saw it. Because yeah. it was so unimpressive compared yeah. to the first one. And then there was 400 years of silence. Mm. Uh, no prophets. Um, no uh, no words from the Lord. No words no. from the Lord. And yeah. then and then here is... Um, um, uh, well, the angel coming the, to the angel, Zechariah. Zechariah, and, yeah. The angel coming to Zechariah and, uh, and speaking to him, and then you have the silence broken. Yes. And he declares that he and his wife will have a son, and his son will be the forerunner of the Messiah. It's and, glorious. And there you have a barren woman. A barren woman. A barren woman who now yes. miraculously conceived. It's like... Well, similar you, to Hannah. It's similar to... Exactly. You, you go back to Hannah, you go back to Sarah before that. Um, yes. You go to Ruth in between, you know. And yes. there's, or, there's these types of the Lord's work, and obviously it, it's leading to Messiah. And yes. Matthew opens up there, the, the first words of the, the New Testament, um, the, you know, the, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You know, yes. And there's these very clear lines that are drawn back to the covenantal promises of God that are showing that this is the one that Saul was not, that David was not, that Moses was not, that Elijah was not. This is yeah. the one that's been prophesied and has yeah. been hoped for. And so there's that beautiful hope that's held out for us. Yeah. And yet that hope, we only see the need for that hope when we understand the mess that we're in because of our sin. Yeah. And we see the kind of destruction yeah. and, and we're warned by it yes. in the examples of you know, the Old Testament saints. And so as you're saying, there's the macro picture, but then there's also the exhortation that comes along with that, that, you know, people of God, there, there's serious consequence for sin. And yes, there's forgiveness. And we see that displayed ever so beautifully. And yes, there's mercy from God, but there's also consequence. And there's, there's great warning for the leaders of God's people, because we see in Samuel and Kings that so go the king, so goes the people. So when the king is unfaithful and is, engaging in all sorts of sinful activity, the people are going to be right there with him. Yeah. And uh, there's uh, there's all sorts of admonitions that can easily be drawn when we see what God blesses and what God doesn't bless. And he doesn't bless sin and, you know, the rebellion of his people. What he does bless is, you know, their, their repentance and humility before him and all of those sorts of things. And so... Uh... We see in the Old Testament not only the, the failures of kings not measuring up to God's standard and being righteous, 
but we see this with uh, priests and prophets oh, as well. Yeah. yeah. And so we have the three main offices in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings, yep. uh, all uh, typifying the one who would come and fulfill those offices perfectly. Yes, all a function of God's blessing to his people in, the, in the, their own capacity, but all limited in their ability except for one. Yes, and so all of them are are anticipating and pointing to the person and mediatorial work of Jesus yeah. Christ, the perfect mediator between God and man, and um, related to the, the the king, the kingship of Christ. Our larger catechism, Westminster Larger Catechism, question forty five, asks, "How does Christ execute the office of a king?" Answer, Christ executes the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself mm -hmm. and giving them officers, namely elders and deacons, yeah. laws and censures, in other words, the, the work of the church, by which he visibly governs them in bestowing saving grace upon his elect, rewarding their obedience and correcting them for their sins, preserving and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings, restraining and overcoming all their enemies and powerfully ordain, ordering all things for his own glory and their good mm. and also in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. Yeah. And so you have Christ here doing all the things perfectly yes. that these kings were mostly to do um, for their people mm. and failed miserably. Yeah. And so what a, what a beautiful... Uh, picture as we consider God's covenant promises, as we consider the unfolding of redemptive history, as we consider the 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 uh, limitless failures of mankind, mm -hmm. us included, sitting right here. Absolutely. And the glorious anticip anticipation of Jesus Christ, uh, who was born of a virgin, and who lived a sinless life, who who died uh, a sacrificial atoning death on the cross, and he rose from the dead victorious. And as uh, as king was exalted to the right hand of God yeah. and given all authority in heaven and on earth. And now he, he reigns as king over, the, over heaven and earth. Yeah. And he's our king and he's our savior. And, and so First and Second Samuel, it's just pointing us to that. Yes. Yeah, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the providence of God, the sovereign love and steadfast love of God over his people. And that, that's one of the themes that we've seen come out again and again is God's steadfast love mm. and faithful promises to his people despite their sin. Yes. And it's it's a preaching of the gospel even in the telling of the story because you see a God who's merciful and patient and kind far beyond what we could ever expect. And the the way that 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 God shows his patience it, it is this glorious picture of his love and it's an anticipation of what his love is bringing in his own son mm. to uh, to make all things new and to, to to bring his people into the relationship with God that that no other way could they be brought into um, so that they would worship him from the heart and they would serve him in the heavenly promised land forever Amen. there's all those themes running through here and it really is uh, it's really magnificent uh, to study God's Word like this. Amen. Well, Ross, thank you so much for your faithfulness to bring the Word of God to us on Lord's Day evenings and uh, from thank time you. to time on Sunday mornings as well. And 
Uh, we're so thankful uh, for your ministry. And Thank you. uh, once again, just want to encourage uh, especially uh, our own membership uh, to make it a commitment to come back to Lord's Day evening service. Uh, it has been growing, and that is encouraging. Yeah. Boy, I, yeah. uh, the last couple of weeks, it's it's been pretty full uh, in the in the sanctuary. And yeah. we would just love to see that uh, grow because we want to see uh, our members grow in their maturity and uh, what better than, than to have a second helping of the means of grace uh, on the Lord's Day. Well, thank you so much for uh, spending this time with us, uh, our listeners, and join us next time on Between the Times.